0: Hi, this is Lisa Borders, and this is my podcast, Enlightened. I'm so glad that you decided to join me. There are two types of episodes we'll be sharing here. One is me telling my story from growing up in the civil rights era in Atlanta in the 60s to being president of the WNBA and everything in between. The other type is a conversation with a guest about an enlightened experience in their life. Today, I'll be sharing my story. If you like what you hear here today, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper conversations at lisaborders.us. Thanks so much. I was born in Washington, D.C. on November the 25th, 1957. My father, William Holmes Borders Jr., was in medical school at Howard University. My mother, Gloria Thomas Borders, was working at the CIA in Washington to help put my father through medical school. That was an interesting time They both were from Atlanta and had recently married and moved to Washington so Daddy could go to medical school. Mama was determined to help him and make sure that he made it all the way through. There were only two medical schools that black doctors or potential doctors could go to, Howard or Meharry, and Daddy had been accepted to Howard, and everybody was so very proud. Daddy's parents... Grandpapa Borders was a preacher, Reverend William Holmes Borders Sr., the senior pastor at Wheat Street Baptist Church in Atlanta. And his wife, my grandmother, Julia Pate Borders, was the first lady at Wheat Street. Our family was deeply involved in civil rights, but I didn't know that. I wasn't born yet. So, Flash to 1957 and I'm born. My parents are in Washington, a struggling young couple. I remember as a really little girl, our babysitter who came and took care of us when mom went to work and daddy went to school, her name was Gail and she was tall and I remember she had shoulder length hair and Gail played games with us all the time. It was me and my younger brother, Billy, who was born two years after me in 1959. It always seemed like it was cold in Washington. Now, I'm sure there were four seasons just like there are now, but it always seemed like it was cold and we were playing inside the house. I remember my address. Our address was 2001 Savannah Terrace, southeast in Washington, And we lived on the second floor in an apartment. It had two bedrooms and a bathroom and a long skinny kitchen and dining room and a den. And it seemed like a lot of fun all the time. Now, I remember Mama's car, too. It was a yellow and white Chevrolet, and Billy and I used to climb in the back, and Mom would drive us different places. I don't remember where we were going, but it was just so much fun to ride in that car. I do remember her driving me to school, and I think it was called Garfield Elementary, and The teachers there, I don't recall so clearly, but I do remember sitting in class and learning my ABCs and learning to count. And I remember that I did get in trouble sometime for not behaving properly. I would do my schoolwork, what the teacher would tell me to do, but then I would socialize with all of my friends sitting in the classroom. Well, Washington was work for my mom and school for my dad. And after a while, I think they realized it was hard to take care of little children while they were super focused on trying to get their work done so that they could move forward. So they sent my brother and me to Atlanta to be taken care of by our grandparents So my grandparents on my father's side kept us during the week. And my grandparents on my mother's side kept us on the weekend. My grandparents on my mother's side worked at the Coca-Cola company. My grandfather, Harmon Thomas, was a chauffeur for one of the first presidents, Mr. Arthur A. Acklin, at the Coca-Cola company. He started working there in 1929. Of course, I didn't know that as a little girl. In fact, when I was born in 1957, he was in the twilight of his career at Coca-Cola. He retired in 1959, so he spent 30 years as a chauffeur. His wife and my maternal grandmother, Rosa Lee Thomas, worked as a maid at the Coca-Cola Company. For 15 years. So between them, they worked 45 years for the Coca Cola Company. Let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to it and talk about them some more. As a little girl, I recall going to school with my maternal grandmother. Family on that side worked in the church. My grandfather was the pastor at Wheat Street, my grandmother was the first lady. They had a nursery school and an elementary school, and I remember attending classes and activities at nursery school with the younger children. We had so much fun. I don't remember all the academic lessons, but I do remember some of the life lessons of right from wrong and telling the truth and helping other people. And I don't really know that I understood how impactful those lessons would be, but they stand with me today. And whenever I'm trying to make decisions, I can hear the voices of my grandparents and my parents telling me, you know the right thing to do. Regardless of what you think the outcome is going to be, you need to do the right thing. My grandparents were also involved in civil rights. They were part of the city leaders at that time, at least in the African-American community, who were trying to make sure that everyone had everything they needed in our community, whether it was clean, affordable housing or whether that was money to buy food. As I recall, my grandfather sitting on the porch, and I would be sitting with him in the building they call the Parsonage, which was living space for the pastor and his family right beside the church. People would come up to him and have conversations. He would sit for many hours and listen as parishioners came or just someone walking down the street wanting his counsel or wanting to borrow money, or wanting guidance on what they should do with their life. I can remember him talking to everyone. He never turned anyone away. He would sit and rock in his rocking chair and listen and listen and listen. And then he would offer the money or the advice or whatever it was they were asking for. And he would look at me and say, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should always listen twice as much as you talk. I'm sure I didn't fully understand that at the time, but every time he would make a statement like that, I remember thinking he was really serious because he wouldn't laugh he would have a straight face, and he would be speaking very clearly and distinctly as if he needed to enunciate even more precisely so I could understand the lesson. I am the oldest of his grandchildren. We ultimately had six grandchildren, four in my immediate family and then two cousins, We all understood he was the preacher of the church, but I'm not sure we understood the impact of who he was when we were growing up. We all went to church on a regular basis because this was part of the family ritual. I'm not sure I could have said at that time it was a family value, but that's what it really was. And... It wasn't just the Sunday service at 10.30 every Sunday. It was Bible study on Wednesday night. It was sign language class on Friday night. I learned to sign to those who were deaf in our community so that they too could appreciate and understand and participate in the service. I would go to class every Friday and practice my ABCs through sign language. The teacher was there, but also members from the church who were deaf were there. And they would correct me or they would nod their head and affirm for me that I was making the proper sign for thank you or I love you or my name is Lisa, and I could spell my name. So it wasn't just the Sunday service. It was a full-on, week-long engagement with the people and the place we called the church. It was really a meeting place where everyone seemed to feel good because we listened to my grandfather speak, but we also sang songs, and chanted the scripture, and learned poetry. My grandfather wrote a poem right around the time I was born called I Am Somebody. That poem we had to learn as little children, and it really spoke about the contributions of black people to America, It had lines like, I'm a poet in Langston Hughes. I really didn't understand what it meant until much later. I learned the poem, and I could say it flawlessly. What I was really doing was learning black history, because it wasn't taught in school. But it helped me internalize the fact that our community, people that look like me and my mother, my father, my brother, my grandparents, that we, too, had contributed to this thing called America. The exposure in church was really impactful It really gave me a sense of confidence in not only who I was, but who my family was and who all our friends were because there was our biological family and there was our extended family in the church. Our church is on Auburn Avenue. To this day, it is still there. It was at the corner of Auburn Avenue and what was then called Young Street. Today it's at the corner of Auburn Avenue and William Holmes Borders Drive because Young Street has been renamed for my grandfather. His impact on the community was huge. For me, he was just grandpa, and I was always holding his hand when we would walk down the street on Auburn Avenue. There were three churches, there was a funeral home, there was a shine stand, and several restaurants, and we frequented all of these places, and they were all Black-owned. The funeral home was owned by Mrs. Holgerbrooks, and she was a church member and a strong Black woman physically and intellectually and emotionally she always seemed to have all the answers she spoke with a firm voice it was heavy and it seemed like she always was in control she used to say to my grandfather rib you stand them up i lay them down she was really special She was an entrepreneur. I didn't understand that at the time, but that's what she was. One of the other people that I remember seeing on a fairly regular basis was Dr. King. Martin Luther King's church was one block away from our church, and he used to come to the church to hear my grandfather preach. And I really saw him not as Dr. King we know him as today, I saw him as Yoki and Marty and Dexter and Bernice's daddy. The King children were my playmates. They were my family's playmates. We all were in this environment together. We all knew each other. We all had the same time on Auburn Avenue, so to speak, not only for church but for all the other activities and all the businesses that we frequented And that exposure was something that I took for granted. I didn't really understand, even when Dr. King was assassinated, what that really meant to our city or to our country. What I understood as a little girl standing at the corner of Auburn Avenue and then Young Street, watching the funeral procession head down the street, a wooden wagon with a coffin led by a donkey, and folks from the Poor People's Campaign, in the Poor People's Campaign uniforms of blue jean overalls leading the donkey, and there was absolute quiet. No one was talking. Everyone was very, very quiet, respectful and honoring the fact that Yoki and Marty and Dexter and Bernice's daddy had been killed. So as a little kid, I was sad for my friends. I didn't really fully comprehend why everybody else was so sad, except they must have known Marty and Yoki's daddy too. But it was a huge deal. And as a little girl, I did remember that before that day when the funeral procession occurred, that there was a radio program on that we heard while my mother and I and my brother were at church. We were in the church office. My mother was typing the bulletin for the coming service on that Sunday, and we heard what we would today call breaking news that Dr. King had been shot. I didn't put it all together until after the funeral procession, but I did understand that that newsflash and this funeral were connected, that my friend's father had been killed and that we were all upset about it. As I got older... I certainly understood better that Dr. King was actually assassinated and that there were many people, primarily white people, who were very much threatened or intimidated or scared of what Dr. King was trying to do. My grandfather told me that what he was trying to do was make sure that black people had the same rights as white people, that we had contributed to this country just as much, if not more, than anybody that was here. That's what his poem, I Am Somebody, was all about. So as I got older, I understood much better But the pain of my friends losing their father didn't go away very easily. I loved my father. My mom, my father, I couldn't imagine life without mama and daddy. How do you do that? How do you go on when somebody who gave you life and takes care of you is taken away? Well, my parents tried to explain not only to me, but to my siblings, because by this time, my sister had been born in 1961 and my youngest brother in 1963. My parents had moved back to Atlanta after my father finished his medical training so that he could start his practice in his home city and in our home city. The exposure at such a young age to civil rights, the marches for civil rights, I often walked down Auburn Avenue holding my grandfather's hand. I'm not certain at all that I understood we were protesting. There were pictures of him on TV, and he got arrested several times, and he went to jail. But every picture I saw of him in jail, he had on his winter coat and his hat and his suit. And he was standing in the door of the jail. And I couldn't understand if he had done something wrong, why they didn't lock him in the jail. And if he did something wrong, what was it? It was strange. But he continued to march down Auburn Avenue. He continued to talk to people that I didn't always know. Sometimes they were elected officials. Mayor Ivan Allen, he talked to regularly, and I recall knowing who he was but not really understanding what was going on. Those experiences were impactful. If for no other reason, my grandfather seemed to be talking to people that he didn't always agree with. And so one of his other teachings was, you can disagree without being disagreeable. And once again, he would always say it with a straight face, and he would enunciate every word and every syllable as if he needed to do that so I and my siblings and my cousins could understand what he meant. He was a looming force, but so were my parents. My father started his medical practice and we got to see him be a doctor. He had a black medical bag and his name was on it. And my mother made sure that He had his lunch made every day, and she would let me help him make a sandwich and put it in a separate bag for him so that he would have something to eat when he went to work because he had to work all day and then come back home to see us. I remember his first office was in a house, and I think we would call it renovated today, but I remember it was... Cold and the heaters worked in some rooms but not in all the rooms. So the places where the patients were supposed to be had heaters. But ultimately, my grandfather decided that that house was not adequate. And when he made that decision, by this point, I believe my father's sister had also finished. Medical school. She is an obstetrician gynecologist, and she is the last of them standing in 2020. She married a dentist, so we had three medical professionals, and my grandfather decided they needed their own space, that they needed to be self sufficient. And so he built them an office building. And when he built the office building, he made the grandchildren the owners, which I thought was the craziest thing. How could we own something that our parents worked in? But that's what he did. The six grandchildren were and are the owners to this very day. That building was built right beside the original house that my father's office was in. And it became fondly known as the doctor's building. My aunt was in the first space, her husband was in the middle space, and daddy was in the space in the far end. That building became very symbolic for me and for us and our family because that was where the work of the family went on. We spent so many days watching my dad do his work, spending time with him after school there. And by the time I was 10 or 11, I was working in his office in the summer. I got to bring patients back to the exam rooms. My dad ultimately bought me a nurse's uniform and white shoes that I could wear. So I looked official to be a part of the staff in his office. I learned how to dip urine and tell him whether people were spilling sugar if they were diabetics, and if so, how out of balance their systems were. And I was like 10 or 11 years old. It was kind of amazing. His sister, who competed with him, even as an adult, they both were very competitive. They were trying to decide whose practice I would get to take over when I grew up because they assumed I was going to go to college and then go to medical school and then come out and take over one of their practices. My aunt said, I want you to come and see a cesarean section. I want you to see surgery and see if you can, in fact, hang in the OR. So she took me to see my first cesarean section when I was 12 years old. We went to the hospital. She took me into the operating room to the scrub sinks. She taught me how to scrub so that I would be sterile in my hands and my drape. She had me dressed in all the surgical garb, and she brought me into the operating room where she proceeded to do a cesarean section. Now, mind you, this is like 1968, 1969, somewhere in that era. And I began to watch her as she literally started this surgery. And as she cut the abdomen and folded back, the layers of skin. Of course, there was some blood. And I remember seeing it and all of a sudden becoming very dizzy, very woozy. And I felt like I was going to fall. In fact, I did fall. And when I began to wake up, I could hear my aunt saying, Do not fall in my field. Do not fall in my sterile field. Get up. You're going to watch this. The nurses were apparently giving me smelling salts and helping me stand up so that I would not fall into her sterile field where she was working, but also so I could see what was going on. Well, to be clear, that was my first And last, surgery. I thought, I am not going into obstetrics and gynecology. First of all, babies do not make appointments, so you are getting up all times of the day and night. And this surgery thing, it is like the bloodiest game in town. I'm not doing it. This is not cut out for me. I can do medicine, but it won't be this particular field. Daddy, on the other hand, was an internist, and he used to tell me that internists were the smartest doctors because they had to know every system in the body. You had to know everything top to bottom, left to right. You had to understand how all the systems were interrelated because you could work on one and mess up another if you didn't understand what impact the first action had on the secondary system. Put a pin in that. That's a strategic lesson even for today. Daddy had me learn all of the systems, the hearts, the lungs, the kidneys, the bowel. He consistently taught me the different parts of the body and how they interacted. But the most fun I ever had with him And the thing that I really probably learned from the most was the house calls that he took me on. There were many house calls where he would get his bag, we would finish the day of patients, and then he would say, I have to go see the patients who can't come to the office. They are too sick, or they are too elderly, or they are too fragile, and so we must go to them. Well... We would go do house calls after office hours. We would greet all the patients. Then he would listen to their heart. He would nine times out of ten let me stay for the heart part, but then anything else he'd tell me I'd have to wait outside in the parlor. So I'd wait for him. But the opportunity to go to these individual patients' houses and see how they welcomed him And trusted him and how he cared for them was really not only interesting to me, it made me feel like these people were our family too, and we needed to really take care of them. When all was said and done, we would come home, and he would pass out in his favorite chair, and I would understand why he was so incredibly tired. But the next morning, we would get up and do the entire thing all over again. Before we left, my mom always made us a great breakfast. This was in the summer where I'm not going to school. I'm going to work with my dad every day to get exposed to medicine. My mom insisted on making eggs and bacon and toast clearly a Southern breakfast, every single day. And I would tell her almost every day, Mom, I hate these eggs. I don't like how they taste. Her response, I don't care what you don't like. This is the food we have. It's good for you. Eat it. I would just be done with that. I'm like, oh my God. God, I hate how this tastes. I don't like how they look. I'm just not going to eat it. And she would say, you know what? You're not getting up from that table until you finish those eggs. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to sit here. Well, I would sit there for like an hour. Those eggs would be ice cold and they would be like rubber after an hour They were awful. Mom would go on about her business. She'd be cleaning the house. She'd go to the back of the house. As soon as I realized she was in the back of the house, I would take my plate and I would go in the kitchen and I would scrape those eggs behind the stove. I did this every day for I cannot tell you how long. It must have been months. I have no idea why we didn't have roaches or why we didn't have rats. But when my mother finally figured it out and moved the stove, holy cow, there was a mountain of eggs behind the stove. It was awful. All I could do was laugh, and my mother was so... Pissed, she was like, "Why did you put these eggs behind here?" I was like, "I told you I didn't want them," and she was like, "And I told you to eat them." I said, "Well, mom, they're awful." Let me just say, I ultimately won that battle because after she found all those damn eggs behind that stove, she never tried to make me eat another egg for breakfast. For the rest of my life. The first house we lived in was at 490 Peyton Road. That's where I put all those eggs behind the stove. But let me give you some context. Peyton Road was in southwest Atlanta. During the time of the civil rights era in the 1960s, There was a barricade erected across Peyton Road, and it was erected by white people. And it was specifically designed and created to keep black people from moving or driving or walking beyond a certain point on Peyton Road. And so my mother, native Atlantan that she was, she knew about the Peyton Road barrier. And her greatest wish for her first house was to live on Peyton Road. In her mind, that would mean that she had crossed a threshold that had been previously forbidden. So when that barrier was taken down, that physical barrier across the street was taken down and laws were passed that said you could no longer prevent people from moving to a particular part of town or in a particular street or house because they were black or because they were not white or whatever other attribute that was not like all the other people. She and my father took that opportunity to buy a house on Peyton Road and that's where we lived. That was the very first house that daddy bought for the family Not only did he buy that house, he bought land behind the house as well as land beside the house, three acres, nearly three acres beside the house, and a half acre behind the house so that he had adequate flexibility to do whatever he wanted to do. Now, I don't remember he and my mother saying, we're going to buy property For the future, I just remember him saying the kids need a place to run around and to play and to enjoy themselves. So he bought the land so we could enjoy ourselves as children. And we loved it. We had a terrific, terrific time there. He worked hard and my mother supported him. And we thought everything was super cool. But what I did notice from time to time is that my father was overbearing. It was his way or no way. He made the money, so he wanted to make what seemed to be all of the decisions. Now, my mother would push back. Glow would say, wait, 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 no, we're not doing that. This is not how we're doing it or what we're doing. And they would have not spirited debates. There would be full-on arguments about how things were going to go. And they were not pretty. They were not pretty. They were often loud. They were often contentious. And Daddy tended to be condescending. And I don't know if he intended that or not, but that's how it sounded to me. And it was a little bit scary As a little kid, when you see your parents arguing when they normally are not, they normally are getting along just fine and having conversations and day in and day out or rolling sort of routinely. When you see this disruption and it's loud and it's tense, it's scary. And all you want to do is run away or make it stop. And you don't really want to be in that situation anymore. And when we lived at 490 Peyton Road, it didn't happen a lot, but it happened. And oftentimes, Daddy would be home with us on a weekend, say, and he'd be babysitting. And I can remember one time in particular, my mother was shopping, I think, and Daddy was in the house, and we were all outside in the front yard playing. Neighbors were there from other houses around the community. And I was riding a new bicycle that Daddy and Mom had bought for me. It was an English racer. And I recall that the brakes for this bike were on the handlebars as opposed to the pedals. In the traditional bikes, the American-made bikes, You put the pedals in reverse to stop, but on the English racer, you have to press down on a gear on the handlebars. But this was the first time I had ever ridden this type of bike, and we were all playing in the front yard. I was riding the bike. My siblings were playing baseball or kickball or something. And I remember coming around a corner in the yard, and my youngest brother was playing hindcatcher, or catcher, and I couldn't stop the bike, and I was going too fast. And as I tried to turn the bike, the kickstand from the bike was coming past his head, and instead of passing his head, the kickstand actually went directly into his head. And he had the kickstand in the side of his head and he was lying on the ground and he was crying. In fact, he was screaming and I had fallen off the bike. The bike was laying sideways and my brother was bleeding on the ground. I remember saying, get daddy, get daddy. So my brother Billy went and got Daddy and daddy came out and he looked at Eric. He reached down. He took the kickstand out of Eric's head and he said, get in the car. All of you get in the car. We all got into the car. He's like, hold this compress on his head. So I'm holding the compress on his head. I'm 11 years old or so. So my brother is like five because he's the baby. I'm holding the compress and we go to Daddy's office and we go in the office into one of the exam rooms and he puts Eric on the table and he starts getting out his materials and what we see that he's about to do is sew up Eric's head because it has like a hole in it. I can't remember if it was deep. It must not have been so very deep because he sewed it closed, cleaned it, sewed it closed, bandaged it, and then said, you're going to be just fine, to my little brother. And then he carried him back to the car, and we all went back home. I have never been so scared as to think I hurt my little brother. I certainly didn't do it on purpose, but I never rode that bike again. And my father was really aggravated with me. His point of view was it was an accident. Accidents happen. Eric was okay. He stitched him up and bandaged him up and that he was going to be just fine. So I should learn how to ride the bike properly so I wouldn't have mistakes or make mistakes and wouldn't be scared about it. Daddy had a way about him. He always tried to explain what we could do or what we should do, but his tone was always really, really sharp. And I remember thinking, he's really, really mad at me, and I've got to figure out how to make him not be mad. Well, this went on for not just that day, but... In the years to come I would see that sharpness again. When we moved to our next house on Flamingo Drive, this was one that my mother found and she absolutely loved. We had outgrown the Peyton Road house. There were four of us, plus my parents. We had a dog named Spot. The damn dog didn't have a spot on him, but my brother was reading in his reader Jane and Spot and He named the dog Spot. So we moved to a bigger house on Flamingo Drive. It had formerly been owned by a Delta pilot and his family. But black people had started to move into southwest Atlanta, and white people were starting to move out. This is the beginning of what would be known as white flight from Atlanta. We didn't understand that. We just knew it was a super cool house, It had four bedrooms upstairs and living room and a dining room and several bathrooms. We only had one bathroom on 490 Peyton Road. And so to have two, three, four bathrooms, that was just heaven. So we moved to Flamingo Drive and I started a new school at the Westminster Schools. That's a story for another day. But the house was wonderful, but it was also expensive. And the one thing my father did not do well with was bills. He didn't like bills. He didn't like debt. He really always wanted to be debt-free. But when you buy a house, you pay for it over time. So he always told us he felt the pressure of giving us as a family everything we needed and most of what we wanted. And he tried very, very hard to do that on a regular basis. But when that pressure seemingly got to be too much, that sharp tone and that air of condescension is what it felt like. He was looking down on us. It would come out and it was painful. I remember oftentimes he was as sweet as could be, but sometimes when he was talking to my mother, it didn't sound respectful. It didn't sound nice. And when I think of myself growing up in that environment, I remember thinking, I don't want to be reliant on anyone else to provide for me or make sure that I have what I need and what I want. I want to be able to make my own decisions about when I work and how I work and how much I work. Daddy used to tell me, you are black and a woman. You have two strikes against you in life. You will always have to work twice as hard for half the respect. I used to think, how can you say that type of thing to me? What I didn't understand is that he had lived his life in Atlanta, Georgia, just like my mother. And he had experienced the Ku Klux Klan burning a cross on his father's yard before I was born. That had scared him to death. In fact, He had never gone to this place called Stone Mountain in Atlanta. It was a place that many tourists went to, but he never went as a child and we were never allowed to go as children because it was the place that the Ku Klux Klan met. And that's where the Imperial Wizard from the Ku Klux Klan was in total charge. So... He had some bad, bad, bad memories and uncomfortable experiences that he had had. I didn't get that as a little kid. All I got was that sometimes he seemed mean or angry. And I knew that he didn't enjoy the best relationship with his father. His father was always working my Paternal grandfather was a pastor, and he had a church to take care of. I did understand that my father's sister was the favorite of my grandfather. And my father never seemed to quite get over that. And we would ask him as little kids, which one is your favorite? Because he would tell us that his sister was my grandfather's favorite. And he would say, I don't have favorites. I love you all the same. That was most of the time. But the times when he reminded me that I wanted to be independent were the times when he and my mother had the greatest tension between them. To this day, I know I hold some of my trust issues close because I experienced that type of environment. While my parents were together, because they divorced after about 25 or 30 years of marriage, they did some really amazing things. They raised four children. We all went to private school and graduated from college. They didn't spend a lot of time socializing, but they did spend some time socializing. They were members of something called the National Medical Association, which was the black doctors across the nation. And at this time, there were only 100 black doctors in the state of Georgia. You might ask, how do I know that? There were so few that they made a bumper sticker that said there are under only 100 black doctors in the state of Georgia, and we all had it. My parents had it on their cars. But what my father would do most of the time is everybody else would go to the convention and he would stay and cover everybody's patients. But I can remember one time he did go out of town with my mom and we were left at the house because by this time I'm a teenager. I'm not yet old enough to drive, but I was old enough to take care of us for 24 or 48 hours. So we were home at the Flamingo Drive house, myself, my brother Bill, my sister Julie, my brother Eric. We decide we're not going to eat the food my parents have left for us. We decide that we want hamburgers from Crystal, and we're going to drive from Flamingo Drive to Campbellton Road. Now, this is probably only three miles away, but remember, I don't know how to drive. I'm only... 14 or 15 years old. My parents' cars are downstairs and they've left the keys, but nobody knows how to drive, so I'm sure they didn't think to put the keys away. They did tell us to be good and stay in the house and not let anyone in. Well, I convinced my siblings that we should get in my mom's car and drive, and it is a Bonneville. I think that was a Buick. I can't remember, but it's a long car. It looks like a boat. We get in. I back it out. I start driving to Crystal. I'm driving this huge car with my siblings. Seatbelts were not the law then. Everybody was old enough to not be in a car seat or anything, but we have no business in this car. We get halfway to Crystal, and I'm a little bit nervous, but we're already driving down the street. We're driving down Cascade Road. It's a wide street. I'm going really slowly. I turn onto a street to take us over to Campbellton Road. We get to an intersection, and I need to make a left-hand turn onto Campbellton Road. My siblings are making noise, and I can remember telling them, everybody be quiet. I've got to make this turn, and I'm not sure how to do this, so everybody's got to be quiet. So everybody gets really quiet. The light changes. I have on what I called then my blinker, my left blinker. I begin to make the left-hand turn. The only problem is instead of tapping the gas, I pressed hard on the gas, and as we turned left, the car didn't just turn. It went into a donut like twice. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm going to kill us. I'm going to kill us. And it finally stopped. Somehow I found the brake, and I stopped. And my siblings were all wild-eyed in the back of the car, and they're like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Mama's going to kill us. And I was like, well, we're not dead yet. Do y'all still want to go to Crystal? They're like, no, we want to go home. We don't want to go to Crystal. We want to go home. I'm like, okay, okay, we're going to go home. So everybody, everybody sit down. I'm going to, I'm going to drive us back home. So I finally get the car straightened out and we drive back down the street We never made that left turn. We just went in a circle twice. So I was able to go straight ahead back on the street that we came on and head back home. It seemed like it took forever. It probably only took 20 minutes, but it felt like it took an hour to get back home and get Mama's car parked back in the garage. And I turned to my siblings and I said, okay, everybody's okay. We all are back home. We are all safe. Nothing happened. This is a secret. You are never, ever, ever allowed to tell Mama and Daddy that we took the car out. And my brother Bill said, we didn't take the car out. You took the car out. I said, you are in the car, too. So you're going to get in just as much trouble as me if you tell. You can never tell. I don't care how mad you get at me. I don't care how much we get upset with one another. You can never, ever tell Mama and Daddy that we took this car out while they were gone. Do you agree? Everyone said, okay, we agree. Now, my youngest brother, at this point, he's only like six or seven, and all I could think was, even though he agrees, he's going to tell. At some point, he's going to tell, and we're all going to get in trouble. Well, I am happy to report that both of my parents, William Holmes Borders Jr., M.D., and Gloria Thomas Borders, both went on to glory they have both transitioned and neither one of them ever knew we took the car out while they were out of town all right everyone that was this week's episode of enlightened i hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend and join the enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you next week.